you're worshiping the Lord that sometimes inside you just want to like burst out, you know, and praise. Just, I mean, like if you're sitting on, on top of a mountain and you want everybody to hear you, but there's just like acres and acres and acres of, of woodland in front of you, down below you, all around you, mountains and whatever. And you just want to shout praise to God. <laughs> There's going to be a day, I guess, when we won't be able to contain that. For some reason, we contain it today, but um, I guess we don't want anybody to think we're crazy, nuts. That's all right. Back in the 70s, they used to call us Jesus freaks. So I figured if we can take Jesus freaks, we're going to be called all kinds of other things, too. It's all right. Well, this evening we're going to uh, do our third in a series of one teaching. <laughs> a third in a series of one teaching on the Feast of Trumpets, which actually uh, is only three verses long. And, and in that, when you look at them, there's, it's really only two verses long, because the first part says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, and then we're given the instructions about the Feast of Trumpets. And up to this point, we have, uh, uh, we have spent uh, the same number of weeks uh, that there are verses, you know. So we, uh, two weeks, we got two verses. So now we make it even because there were really three verses and we're going to go three weeks in the Feast of Trumpets. And you may wonder, how can that be? Well, I wonder myself. Because that's what this whole mystery about this feast is. It's, it's a mystery. So much so that it's called Yom HaKiseh. The hidden feast or the hidden day, actually. The feast of the hidden day. And, uh, and yet we, all we've been doing is revealing more and more from this day. So I think that's pretty good. But here's the thing. We have to go on to the next feast next week which is, of course, uh, Yom Kippur. And uh, we have to get there. And I still have three pages left, written pages, that have been put into this study. So uh, we're not going to do four weeks, because there's only three verses. Let's start reading Leviticus 23, verse 23. Uh, Again, if you haven't been with us for any amount of time, uh, on the study of the seven feasts of Israel, we began a few weeks ago on all seven feasts at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 23. And each one of these feasts, each one of these seven feasts is something that our Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled up to the point of the first three feasts, which are the feasts of Passover, Pesach, the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits, which are all within the same amount of time after the Passover. And it was at that very same time that Jesus uh, suffered. He was the lamb that was uh, to be offered as the lamb of God, uh, the pure lamb of God. And he was on the cross. He died. He shed his blood, uh, was buried, uh, fulfilling on the day of unleavened bread, uh, that particular feast also, which was within the time frame of the Passover. And then he fulfilled the first fruits, 
when he rose from the dead on that day, on the very same day of first fruit. So Jesus fulfilled every one of those uh, feasts of Israel, the first three. But then the church came into existence 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and so that has been fulfilled, the Feast of Pentecost, which was the summer harvest or the summer feast, the summer in gathering. And all of these, all of these terminologies that we've been using, you know, they all fit well into the history of both Israel and the church. Uh, the church is gathered together as a harvest. But that continues. We are still in that particular uh, time frame, what is called the time of the Gentiles or uh, a few other names, you know, the, the, the day of grace. We, ta- we talked about it as the dispensation of grace. We saw that last time. So now we are in the fall feasts, which are the Feast of Trumpets, uh, Yom Kippur, and then the uh, Feast of Weeks, uh, or, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. Okay, so get all that lined up. And those are the three feasts that have yet to be fulfilled. So now, as believers in Jesus Christ, when Jesus said, I'm going to come again to receive you unto myself, this is what the church is waiting for. And in effect, when he comes, he fulfills that particular feast of trumpets. And we've been talking the last two weeks about the importance of the trumpets uh, to the Jewish people in their feasts. But this one feast, the Feast of Trumpets, is really a, mystery, a mysterious feast because they do what they're told, but they don't know why. And that's the thing. But we as a church know why. Because we're waiting for the coming of Jesus, and it says that when he comes for his church, he comes with a voice of, of a trumpet. He comes actually sounding the trumpet, and that is the same word for the day of, of uh, trumpets, which is Yom Teruah, a shout in, in essence, a joyful sound. So we've got two weeks under our belts on this one, and so we're going to kind of pick up and continue to fill in a lot of other little gaps here. So anyway, uh, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Now, we're going to center tonight on this word, memorial. Because it is the word um, zikron in the Hebrew, zikron, which, which means to remember. It means to remember. I'll, I'll have that word up here in just a minute so you can see it. Uh, transliterated. Not, I could write it in the Hebrew, but, it's, but it's, it'll be in English. <laughs> so it's a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. All of that is very simple, but it's also very much like the others. This is what's going to happen. But they're told to blow the trumpets, and then it says, You shall do no servile work therein, which all the other feasts uh, have that same instruction. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So, so much more can be said then about the Feast of Trumpets. 
And even though we have, for the most part, covered the most important aspects of the feast, especially its connection to the rapture of the church, there are just a few more important connections to be made to clearly have this feast established well in our understanding. And again, from the, from the perspective of the church, of the church of Jesus Christ, it continues to have a mysterious aspect to it, which is understood from our study of Yom HaKeseh, the hidden day which this feast is called. We should also remember the importance of knowing it by its other name. I've already mentioned it, Yom Teruah. Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening blast. Again, Teruah is, is a word that at times is translated uh, as shofar or the, the blowing of the shofar, an awakening blast, a loud noise, a joyful noise, a joyful sound, and it's translated this way. But usually it is applied to the blowing of the shofar. I was working on my shofar from last week. It sounded better today, but I thought, no, it's going to sound good in my office, but then when I bring it out here, it's going to say the, do the same thing, so I'm not going to bring it, bring it out to blow it. But anyway, the day of the awakening blast is the day that begins the ten days of prayer. Remember this, because we studied already. The Yom Teruad, the day of that awakening blast, begins the ten days of prayer, self-examination, and repentance. I mentioned that last time as teshuva. Teshuva. Literally, it is aseret yemei teshuva, which culminates on the feast day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Aseret yemei teshuva just literally means the ten days of teshuva, the ten days of repentance. But more on this later. But before we move on, let me insert a verse, and actually a few verses, based on the fact that the shofar blast, the blast of the trumpet, the ram's horn, the blast of the trumpet, the blast of awakening, and I have to mention that uh, on Yom Kippur, I'm, I'm sorry, on Yom Teruah, which is Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the head of the year, they call it. On that day, they actually blow 100 shofars, 100 sounds. This, this is what the rabbis tell them they believe they need to do. Is, you know, of all the four trumpets that we, we talked about last week, the four blasts, they will blow those 100 times, or it's done 100 times on that day. And again, remember, it's, it's the new year, it's celebration, it's, it's a joyful sound, but it's also a reminder that... God is king, it is also a reminder that they need to humble themselves before God. The preparation then for those days of prayer and fasting, there's fasting that goes on as well as repentance and uh, self-examination. So, I want to give you this verse that is based on the fact that the shofar blast of awakening and the calling of God's people to return to Him and to seek His face will mean the greatest joy for those who find Him. The greatest joy for those who find the Messiah. Because the Messiah is the King. So I want you to turn, if you will, to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. We'll kind of begin our 
our little venture into uh, closing our understanding of the Feast of Trumpets here. In Psalm 89, verse 15. Now, this is the key verse, and I'm, but I'm going to follow out with, with a few more verses for context as far as the whole issue of the feasts and this one feast in particular is concerned. Psalm 89, verse 15 says, Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. Now, when you look at the term joyful sound in the Hebrew, it is, the two words is one word, teruah. There is the word, teruah. So blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. Now, in, which means they would walk in the presence of God. God's presence is full of light. Everything about coming to God is about light, but coming out of darkness into his light. That's, this is what we've been seeing all along. Jesus showed it to us when he died and was put into the, into the tomb. Darkness arising on, on the day of, of first fruits alive. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And when there is, where there is life, there is light. Where there is light or life, there is light, especially his light. So it is in the light of thy countenance. And then verse 16 says, in thy name shall they rejoice all the day. Now, what do you think we're going to do when we're caught up together to be with the Lord? I don't think there's going to be a time when we, when we stop rejoicing. And then it says, In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and in their favor our horn shall be exalted. Now, I put the word there, and it's a Q, by the way. You can put a K there as well when you transliterate. But it's the word keren or keren. Keren is a horn, another horn. And it can, off, as a matter of fact, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm putting this here because in a few verses, uh, in another section of the scriptures, we're going to see this word as, as a ram's horn. Okay, so we'll come back to that. But, but notice, for thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn, our keren, shall be exalted. Now, of course, also the, the horn was the horn of their abundance, whatever was put into you know, a big horn to, well, we're in, what we, we, we're in the fall season, aren't we? And a lot of times when you see decorations for the fall, you see these big, big, huge horns, you know, uh, and, and, and they're stuffed with all kinds of stuff, pumpkins and whatever else, you know, the collection of the harvest. They were just big baskets, you know, to, to collect stuff. And that's kind of this idea. For the Lord is our defense and the Holy One of Israel is our King. I bring this up because you see on the day of Rosh Hashanah, the day of Yom Teruah, uh, it, is, it is a remembrance that God is king. And they crown him every year this way. So this is the crowning of the king. So there's another name now. So we're, we're moving on. There's another name for the feast uh, that uh, we haven't spent much time on yet. And I mentioned it before, but it's Yom Hasikron. Yom Hasikron. And remember that we mentioned the word memorial in verse 24? It's this word, Sikron. Yom HaSikron, the day of remembrance. This is what this day is also called. The Feast of Trumpets is called uh, the, the Hidden Day. It is called the Day of the Awakening Blast. And it is called uh, the Day of Remembrance, Yom HaSikron. And it is called this in reference to that commandment to remember. That is why the memorial word memorial is there, Sikron. 
to blow the shofar. Remember to blow the shofar on this day. That is the simple instruction here. Remember to blow the shofar on this day to coronate God as the king and creator of the universe. Now this is, this is the Jewish tradition for this day. They blow the trumpet to acknowledge their God, the only true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their king, as well as the creator of the universe. So it takes them back to remember what? To remember Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They were to remember these things. Once again, the blast of the shofar is meant to jolt us. I say us, but, uh, you know, to, to jolt the Jewish people, you know, in the celebration of their, their feast. But, hey, we're grafted in, right, as the church. So it speaks to our hearts, too. It's to jolt us. The blast of the shofar is to jolt us from our sleep that we might remember who we really are by remembering that the Lord is our King. We remember who we are by remembering who He is. Y'all understand, can you understand that? We remember who we are. In other words, we're not God, He is. So that's a good thing to remember. And it's a good thing to remember as they go into the days of awe. They call it the days of awe, the ten days. I said it. You may. Teshuvah. The ten days of introspection and the searching of their hearts. Now, I have to kind of get ahead of you all here and say, you know, most people will say, well, you know what? We as Christians, we already know Jesus. We already know that he died on the cross for our sins. We already know that he's risen from the dead. And we're saved. And we know we're saved. And we can, we can know we're saved because we were studying that on, in John back on, on, on Sunday this weekend. Right. That's good. And we don't have to do anything else for our salvation, do we? Because we don't save ourselves anyway. But one thing that we are to do is we are now to show that we live a new life in Christ. We're not to live the old life any longer. We're not to go between two lives. We're to have a new life. The old man is dead. The Bible continues to say that. Because Paul was one of these Jewish leaders who one time really uh, wanted to get rid of Christians, and now he became one. Became a believer in Jesus, in Yeshua. He became a believer. And then he began to realize that everything in the Old Testament now is being fulfilled, and then the New Testament as it's being written, it's being written on the basis of what we see in the Old Testament. So as we're getting these things, I'm way ahead of myself. This is on my last page. But I'm trying to say that because I don't want you to miss out, you see on what's happening here. When we talk about these days, they're important to us too. That we don't act as if we know everything. We don't know everything. Or that we're better than anybody else. We're not better than. You think we're better than the Jews because we know Jesus and they don't? I mean, think about that question for a minute. Are we better? I don't know. All I know is this. Once... I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was blind, but now I see. And when the Lord told me from his, from his word to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, 
And he tells me to pray for his people and to love his people and to support his people. That's what I'm going to do. Because I love them because he loves them. And we have to continue to do that. All right, so I, I got a little ahead of myself. So we're coming right back. So now on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the main text that is read for that day, whether in home or synagogue, the main text that is read is Genesis 22. Genesis 22. One of the most widely read passages of Scripture in the Jewish liturgy. Genesis 22. And the portion read is called Akedah Yitzhak. Akedah Yitzhak. The binding of Isaac. The binding of Isaac. Read on the day of trumpets. On the day of the awakening blast. Why? Well, let's read on. The story of Akedah Yitzhak is of Abraham and of how Abraham was tested by God to bind his beloved son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. At the last moment, God stopped Abraham from going through with the sacrifice and provided a substitute. What was the substitute? It was a ram. A ram caught in the thicket, as the scripture says. A ram caught in the thicket by his horns, caught by his keren. Now you get a picture here. Abraham sees the ram caught up by the horns, and there may have been only one way to loose that ram for him to take that ram and put the ram on the altar instead. He had to take the horns off. So something to think about, because the Jewish people have thought about it. So before reading Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19, which is, again, this little section called the Akedah Yitzhak, this prayer is offered. Let me read the prayer to you. Our God and God of our fathers, remember us in good remembrance before you. There's the word remembrance, Sikron. Our God and God of our fathers, remember us in good remembrance before you. And recall in recollection salvation and mercy from the heaven of heavens of old. Remember us, Lord or our God, the love of the ancients Abraham, Isaac, and Yisrael, your servants, the covenant and the mercy and the oath that you swore to Abraham, our father, on Mount Moriah, and the Akedah when he bound Isaac, his son, on top of the altar. Remember these things. Now what is, what is significant and quite interesting are some of the quotes about the Akedah from Jewish tradition. I want you to listen to them for just a moment. There's, I'm just going to give you a couple. There's, there's quite a few. 
But here's one written. And, and these are old statements. And I quote, The shofar blown at Mount Sinai, when the Torah was given, came from the ram which had been sacrificed in the place of Isaac. The left horn was blown for a shofar at Mount Sinai, and its right horn will be blown to herald the coming of Moshiach, which is Messiah. The right horn was larger than the left, and thus concerning the days of Moshiach, it is written, on that day a great shofar will be blown. End quote. And I thought, well, that's amazing. Now, I'm not getting a lot of, you know, I'm not saying like, where did that come from? But these, the, the, the Jewish people have thought a lot of these things through and thought a lot of these things out as they're considering what the importance of this day and the importance of what happened on Mount Moriah. That this, this was some connection to Messiah and the coming of Messiah by the blowing of a shofar. Right. Let's move on to one other quote. And I quote, another person writes, By virtue of Isaac or Yitzhak, who offered himself as a sacrifice on top of the altar, the the Holy One, blessed be he, will resurrect the dead in the future, as it is said, to hear the groaning of him who is bound to open up release from the offspring appointed to death. Now that's quoting from Psalm 102, verse 21. And then it goes on. Him who is bound is interpreted as Isaac bound on top of the altar. To open up release for the offspring appointed to death is interpreted as the dead whose graves the Holy One, blessed be He, will open so that He may set them on their feet in the age to come. Now again, this is, this is just an interesting, tremendously interesting thought of, of Jewish tradition as they are looking here at... The Akedah Yitzhak, the, the, the binding of Isaac. And applying the, not only the coming of Messiah, but also the raising of the dead. Now, I want you to remember that the Word of God, of course, is greater than the traditions of men. No doubt. But in reading these statements concerning the Akedah, the binding of Isaac... It is quite interesting that the focus is on that resurrection and on the blowing of the shofar at the coming of Mashiach, the coming of Messiah. It's, it's, it's almost as if they're kind of looking, they're, they're kind of saying this is what's going to, well, they're not saying this, but they're kind of saying, uh, they could have said, well, you know, this is probably what's going to happen in the New Testament when that's written by somebody, you know. They're not thinking that, but, but the, the point of the matter is, they're looking ahead based upon what they are tying together from their understanding of all of the scriptures in the midst of their feasts. And all of these things have happened on the days of their feasts. In particular, the Feast of Trumpets. Yom HaKesed, the mystery of the hidden day. Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening blast. Why so many trumpets on one day? The day of remembrance. Yom Sikron. By the way, this is another thing that happens on the day of 
the Feast of Trumpets. It is also considered the day of the resurrection of the righteous dead. I'm not going to put all of that up there in Hebrew. It is the resurrection or the day of the righteous, the resurrection of the righteous dead. Also on that day. So, we do need to consider the prophetic implications then of the Akedah Yitzhak. What would, those, what would those be? You see, Yeshua, who is Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, Yeshua the Messiah is the promised Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know that, right? We knew that because in John 1 verse 29, John the Baptist, who we know him as John the Baptist, but he was a cousin, a cousin of Jesus. The next day John sees Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And it is believed that, that at that moment he had, he had yet to see his cousin Jesus. But by the inspiration and moving of the Holy Spirit upon him, he saw him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now compare Yitzhak with Yeshua. Both Isaac and Jesus were born miraculously. Sarah was 90 years old when she gave birth to Isaac. She had been barren up to that point up to that time. That was a miracle. When Jesus came into this world, he came according to the prophecy, a virgin shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Both Isaac and Jesus were in fact only begotten sons. And you're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Abraham had another son through Hagar, Yishmael. Yes, he did. But that was not the son of promise. Because even after that is when Sarah was touched and blessed by God to bring Isaac. Now, the only begotten son that truly, biblically, spiritually, and prophetically mattered was Isaac. Both Jesus, both Isaac and Jesus were to be sacrificed by their fathers on, at the very same place. Mount Moriah is considered to be the very same place that was called Golgotha, and we would call it from the, from the Latin, Calvary. And both of them were to be resurrected on the third day. Turn with me to Genesis 22, verse 5. We're not going to read the whole Akedah Yitzhak. We'll just read this verse. 
And keep your finger there because we're going to come back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 verse 5 says, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide you here with the ass, which is the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. When you put all the verses together, you realize that all of that would, would take place in three days. We're told in Hebrews 11, confirmed by the Apostle Paul, verses 17 through 19, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Well, there it is. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of the book of Hebrews, who I believe is the Apostle Paul, tells us that was his only begotten son as it pertains to everything that matters to Israel and to the church as well as prophetically, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure or in a figurative sense, which is like a shadow, in other words, as a type of Jesus. There's another Jewish tradition that I'll mention very quickly here. The tradition was that to some extent when when Abraham was about to to kill Isaac, that he in fact did pierce him and then was stopped from going any further. But that that piercing enough was, was enough to have caused him to die to some extent. Now, again, I'm saying this is just some tradition, like as I read earlier. But that, but see, here's the, here's the thought. That after finding the ram and all, that the miracle came that caused Isaac to rise. So this is their understanding of resurrection on that day. But they're not thinking of Jesus. They're not thinking of, of him as Messiah doing this. But now, Paul, who was one who didn't believe it was Jesus, now knows it is. And puts all of these dots together. And, and lets us know through his word. That in fact, you know, we, we, we really believe that he didn't, you know, that it was symbolic of his death. But he did find the ram, did sacrifice the ram, did have the horns cut off as, as we can suppose. So getting back to Isaac and Jesus, both of them willingly took up the means of his execution because Isaac never fought. Jesus never fought. He went as a lamb to the slaughter, as, as the scriptures tell us. And both Jesus and Isaac demonstrated that one life can be sacrificed for another, the ram for Isaac and Jesus for all mankind. Now, significantly, the first occurrence of the word love in the Scriptures is found in Genesis 22. The first occurrence of the word love is found in Genesis 22. And it is the word ahava, ahava. As a matter of fact, if you buy any uh, uh, stuff from Israel, you know, ladies like to buy the, you know, the creams and all kinds of stuff from a company called ahava. Ahava means love. (laughs) So, anyway, the word love in the scriptures, Ahava, is found in Genesis 22, verse 2. So, 
if you're still in Genesis 22, it says, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now, it refers to a father's love for his only son, much like we read where? In John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The only begotten son whom he loved. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a comparison we see. And we wonder. I mean, these are scriptures that make us wonder. You read the first verse of Genesis Genesis 22, and it, it, it tells us in a sense that God was testing Abraham. And that's a tremendous test, isn't it? To give your only begotten son, the one, the one son that has been promised all along, to be the the line, to continue the line of Messiah, to continue the line from Genesis chapter three, the promise that came through a woman that had been barren, but now gave birth at the age of 90 years old. And God says, take him up there and sacrifice him to me. Bind him. In many cases, when we consider binding, you know, we kind of think, well, we've got to tie you down because we don't want you to get up and leave. The binding then became Nails. Not driven into the hands and feet of Jesus to keep her from leaving. It was again to show that that's where he was to go. And he faithfully and voluntarily went himself. Took those things for us. He took that binding, as it were, for you and for me. So as believers in Yeshua, Jesus, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, and Yom Hatzikron, remind us that the Lord our God is indeed the King of all the earth, our Creator and our Redeemer. We are to acknowledge His righteous rule and His kingship at all times. And in fact, you see, this is again something that I don't want to... I don't want us to lose sight of this thing, but, but Paul was not a Southern Baptist or a Lutheran or a Catholic. Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee. 
He was, as he describes himself, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You can get, you can get more Hebrew than him. He was more Hebrew than Hebrew national. Many of you know what that is. Okay, some of you laughing. All right. You know what Hebrew nationals are. That was Hebrew of Hebrews, man. He was, I mean, in and out, he was a Jew. And he persecuted Christians. Probably, well, had a lot to do with the killing of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. But it's also Paul, Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul the Apostle and who gives us passages like this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, when he speaks of Jesus saying, in whom we have redemption through his blood. For all those years that Paul was a Jew, now he begins to say, hey, now I know what all this blood is all about. Everything pointed to Jesus. And he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. That's what he says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The express image of his person. He's the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Not talking about being created, but the prototokos, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the prototype of, There's no other one, in other words. There's no other one like him. For by him were all things created. So now this isn't speaking just, you know, going to talk about the Father. It's still talking about Jesus. The content and the context. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, that are visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, which means... He's the king. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That's the importance of Rosh Hashanah, of Yom Teruah. That is the importance of this day. Secondly, we are to be reminded to be ready for the soon appearance of King Jesus by remembering our teshuva, remembering by prayer and self-examination and repentance as we wait for His return, which simply means that we are to humble ourselves and walk with our God. We are to be humble and walk with our God. Now the language of the New Testament is clear on all of these issues. For example, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, it says that we are to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Praying always with all prayer. The Jews pray always. Paul understood the, what it meant to pray. It was being in continual contact with God. It was to be in continual worship of God. Acknowledging Him as the one from whom we receive all things, and from, from the one who knows what our needs are before we even ask, but we ask because He wants us to. He wants us to be in fellowship with Him. He wants us to be in communion with Him. We're to pray always with all prayer. Remember, this is the passage that comes from, from the uh, uh, armor of God. And then in Philippians 4, verse 6, it says, Be careful for nothing. In other words, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. 
by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Or 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Now Peter says this, but the end of all things is at hand. I love this verse because it really brings to, brings to mind where we are right now on the prophetic calendar. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober or watchful. And watch unto prayer. Watch unto prayer. Then getting back to Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, dealing with the issue of examination, the self-examination. Paul knows about this and he tells us about this when he says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Man, that's a strong statement to make to a believing church, like the church in Corinth was. Hey, see if you're in the faith. Well, who are you to tell us, Paul? I, you know, I said, you know, I said a prayer back when I was in, when I was in five, when I was five years old. You know, that doesn't matter that I've been up and down, you know, on the spiritual merry-go-round in my life all this time. It doesn't. Paul says, it better examine yourself. Make sure you're in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves? How that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Or when Paul talks about repentance, he talks about it this way in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. He says, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. You know, whenever we slip up, I think, you know, I think of 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is coming with a humble heart before God. There's a third thing to remember on this day that we talk about the Feast of Trumpets. We're to remember that the righteous will be raised to newness of life at the last trump. And I'm not going to say a whole lot more because last week we dealt with that. With what, what the first trump and the last trump was, the, the trumpets that raise the, the dead in Christ, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him to, to meet the Lord in the air, and, and, there, and thus shall we ever be with him. So we talked about all of that. That's something for us to remember. That's why these days are so important for us. Well, I know they're important to other people. You know, they get on YouTube and they say, well, you know, I set the wrong date. It was supposed to be September 23rd, now it's supposed to be October 23rd. Well, you know what? The Lord said, don't even worry about the dates. Nobody knows the day or the hour. When it comes, it comes. So be ready. That's the most important thing, is being ready. But also knowing that if He is coming, then we need to remember that the righteous will be raised to new, 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 newness of life. That's hard to say. One time, much less three times. Newness of life. But it's not newness of life on this earth. It is newness of life with Him. Wherever he is. And there's a fourth thing to remember on this day of remembrance. Remember that the Lord is a God of new beginnings. That is something that we as believers should remember every day that we wake up and get a new breath going, you know. Oh, I'm, it's a new day. <laughs> I breathed. Praise the Lord for that first breath in the morning. You ever, you ever thank God for that first breath that you remember or that you take in the morning? Sometimes I wonder, you know. 
Okay, yeah, we're going. <laughs> Get the heart going. But we remember that God is a God of new beginnings. And even if we have sinned and fallen away from Him, He is faithful to restore us and to cast our sins away from us. How far? As far as east is from the west. God sent His Son to be our sin bearer so we can take comfort in His forgiveness and begin anew with Him. Remember this from the Old Testament. Remember this from the Hebrew Scriptures in the book of Lamentations chapter 3. What does it tell us there? What does Jeremiah tell us about our God? It says His mercies are new every morning. His compassions never fail. Great is His faithfulness. Great is our God's faithfulness toward us. There's a fifth thing that we're to remember. We're to be grateful. We're to be grateful that the Lord has written our names in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. This is one of the three pages. I think it's four now. I think it was four pages. I thought it was three pages. But one of the four pages uh, that I wanted to share with you all tonight about the books that we find in the Scriptures where names are written. I wanted to go through all of that because that's kind of significant when we get to the book of remembrance. I already blew that. I want to go talk about just a little bit. But nonetheless, we are to be grateful if we are believers in Jesus Christ that the Lord has written our names in the Lamb's book of life. Sefer HaChayim. How many of you ever heard Lachaim? Lachaim, you know what it means to life. That's a little Jewish statement. Lachaim, to life. Well, Sefer HaChayim is the book of life. Chayim, life. Of course, we don't believe that we are made acceptable in the Lord's eyes by means of our own works, right? I mean, it wasn't what we've done. And that's what Paul says. Paul, the, you know, the great ex-religious leader, you know, in the, of the Jews, he said in Titus 3, verses 5 through 7, he said, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But those works, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. The works that we do, what are those works? Well, primarily, they are the fruit of the Spirit. Primarily, those are, the, those are the works of the believer. The fruit of the Spirit of God. You can read them in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, mercy, patience, self-control. Probably left one out. But the fruit of the Spirit in our daily lives, those kind of works will be, laid, uh, will be lived out until he comes for the church. There is one more book pertaining to the day of remembrance, and that is the book of remembrance. And because of time, we're not going to go through all the books, but let's turn to Malachi chapter 3 verse 16. I guess the best way to remember it is it's a 316 verse. <laughs> Malachi 316. 
Now, it, when you read the, chapter 3, the beginning of the chapter deals with the fact that, you know, the, these, these people had been in, in, in captivity for so long. And coming out of captivity, you know, they, they began to try to build their lives back and all. And, but they were keeping, you know, they were doing what they were doing, but they were keeping more, more of it for themselves and trying to establish themselves and their households and all. And they were forgetting God. And they were forgetting the house of God. And they were forgetting the things of God. And so that's why the questions are early on in chapter 3. You know, why, why are you robbing God? And not fulfilling your giving and your tithes and all of that. that so that's, the, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the foundation here for, for this passage here. But here in this one verse, it says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Two things in that little phrase. They feared the Lord, and those who feared the Lord spoke often, when, uh, you know, spoke often one to another. They, they had fellowship and they encouraged one another. And this is part of what is to be remembered. They feared the Lord. They spoke often one to another. And the Lord hearkened, notice, and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. That thought upon his name. And all I'm, all I'm going to say is that one person that kind of fit this description was a man named Cornelius. And tonight, when you have a chance, read Acts chapter 10. And there at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, it talks about Cornelius being, being one of these guys. He was, he, was a, you know, he was a Gentile. He was a Roman. You know. but, but he was also one who was believing. He was a proselyte. He was a, one who was wanting to believe in the God of, of Israel. And so he was a person who gave alms. That's what it says there in Acts chapter 10. Read Acts chapter 10. He gave alms. He feared the Lord. Fits the whole of chapter 3 here in Malachi. He had thoughts, you see, upon the name of God. And, And so he would be one that is written in this book of remembrance. Now, we don't have time. And I'd like to come back to this book of remembrance another time but because it does have a link by the way to the feast of trumpets but I did mention that I I wanted to look at the Jewish wedding ceremony which I thought I wasn't going to get to but I'm I'm going to get to it now so I got to put it into overdrive because we don't have a whole lot of time but looking at the Jewish wedding ceremony to gain an, an even greater understanding of the feast of trumpets So I'm going to give you a a very quick and condensed form. But this is what takes place. In the the Jewish wedding or Jewish marriage tradition, the groom's father makes the match. The groom's father makes the match. This is not El Paso in, you know, culture, you know, about how we all got together. The groom's father makes the match, which is called the shidukin, shidukin, and, and, and chooses the bride. The father chooses the bride, and the groom <clears throat> approves the choice. 
<clears throat> now, I'm just going to give you some quick uh, references here. If you go to John chapter 10, I'm going to just give them to you quick. You can write the reference down and look them up. John 10, verses 28 and 29. In John 10, verse 28, Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, and they, that shall, they, that, and they shall never perish, and neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. But notice verse 29. My Father which gave them me. In other words, my Father who gave these to me. The Father gives the bride to the Son. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, we also remember that that the groom approves the choice, right? The groom approves the choice. So in John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So, the Son approves and says, You have not chosen me, I have chosen you. Secondly, a marriage covenant which is called a ketubah, is made in writing for the bride as a promise to the bride that it will be fulfilled, that the covenant itself will be fulfilled. Now, there's a lot of other places. I'm just going to give you one very quick area or a section of the Scripture that says, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 6, it says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also has made us able ministers of the new covenant, Testament is covenant. So there is a new covenant that is, that is being dealt with. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. That just kind of explains that the covenant that is now made in this particular wedding uh, ceremony, especially between the groom who is Jesus and the bride who is the church, has to do with the Spirit that gives life. So anyway, getting back to the, the ceremony, they would then break bread and drink from the cup to seal the betrothal and, and the new covenant. Break bread and drink from a cup to seal the betrothal. We find that happening where? We find that happening in the Passover, in the Passover Seder, the cup and the bread. Because he was talking, remember that Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant. So there's, there's those allusions then to the... Uh, to the marriage feast. The groom then pays the price, showing the bride his love for her. What price was paid for us? The blood of Jesus Christ. The groom then makes a speech, makes a speech of promise to his bride that he would come for her soon. He then proceeds to prepare a place for his bride. That's where the, the, the groom goes. He goes to prepare a place for his bride Building an addition, this was culturally and, 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 and all happening, but he would go and build an addition to his father's house. So when you read John 14 verses 1 through 3, this is what you are receiving from it. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Father chose you for me, I accepted you. Believe in God, believe also in me. Because he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. A dwelling place. There in my father's place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you may be also. 
So then the groom gives the bride love gifts. Love gifts. There are many love gifts that are given to us along with eternal life. Uh, We have his mercy, we have his grace, we have his peace. These are the love gifts that have been given to us by Jesus. But then the father would give the bride gifts also. The father would give the bride gifts to equip her for a new life as an inheritance. When you read John chapter 14 and you continue on reading, you talk, it talks about the comforter being given to the bride. The comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a great gift to give. Nobody else can give that kind of gift. And you don't even have to go to Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, to sign up for it. So then the next thing is the bride's unmarried friends, which are called the bridesmaids. And again, this is not like we know bridesmaids nowadays, you know. It's, this is a lot different, okay? So the bride's, uh, the bride's unmarried friends, which are bridesmaids, attend to the bride and they provide light for the groom who comes at night. Just read Matthew 25 so you can begin to understand how this works. They were to have their lamps ready. There were 10 that Jesus mentions in Matthew 25. Five had their lamps ready. Five did not. But anyway, they have to have the light to be the ones to show, hey, groom, we're over here. Because the groom comes at night. The bridegroom comes, and here we go, here we go. Ready? The, the bridegroom, or I should say the, 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 the groom comes, and the groomsmen have run ahead. The groomsmen have run ahead of the bridegroom, and they shout. So I woke somebody up. They shout. What is the shout called? Teruah. They shout that he is coming. I think I make a better sound than that thing I was trying the other day. So what does the groom come to do at night? He snatches away his bride. And he abducts his bride. Takes her for himself. The groom then takes his bride to the chamber the hupa, the marital the bed uh, the, the the marital chamber, where they consummate and celebrate for seven days. Now this is going to take us seven days to talk about, but we're not going to do it tonight. So there's this big feast it's called the wedding feast on the seventh day of the celebration. I wish I could explain it to you tonight, but you know everybody says, well, the seven years you know the seven years of tribulation. And then come, you know, well, no, the wedding feast is within that seven years because it's in heaven. The seven years of trouble is all down here, which is what we're going to talk about next week because we're getting to Yom Kippur. So anyway, I hope we can get to talk about that one of these days. But we would spend more, we, we would spend another hour just going over the verses that the brief explanation covers that I just gave you. But I, but I hope you get the gist of what went on to project what will be happening according to God's plan. So even that tradition has fallen in line with the Word of God and the coming of Christ for His church. So let's close with this passage from Isaiah. I'm going to just read it to you. Uh, We're a little bit late, but you all are good. 
Y'all are gentle, merciful. Isaiah 26, verse 16. And the reason I want to read this is because this, this involves all the pictures of the last days. Though it's talking about tr- the troubles of, of Judah in the time of Isaiah, all the pictures are pointing to a time that is yet to come. We're, we're that close to what is going to happen. But notice what it says. Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when, they, when thy chastening was upon them. I mean, this, this has gone on for Israel for so long. But notice the language here. Like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. This is prophetic literature. This is prophetic language. The birth pangs. The birth pangs are written about by the Apostle Paul. Read them in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and other places. Even, even in the book of Revelation, we find uh, mentions of the birth pangs. And then it says, We have been with child, we have been in pain, we have, as, uh, we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. The dead men shall live. Now take hold of this, because again, you go back to 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is, tar- is talking about resurrection. And he says, well, Isaiah says, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise, awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And then notice verse 20, come, my people, come. That is the call. In fact, that is a, that is a shout. Come, my people. Enter into thy chambers. This is the wedding chamber. And shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. What indignation? The seven years of tribulation. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. For that to happen, the church has to be out of the way. As I mentioned last week, we, do, we find no reason for the church to be on the earth during the seven-year tribulation because the tribulation is that bad. At the same time, two, two groups of people will, will exist that God is dealing with. Number one, of course, is Israel. God is finishing the seven years of, of uh of chastisement and judgment that they had begun uh, many, many years, many thousands of years earlier, but had, already, had only gone through 483 years of, of that. Now there was a seven-year period left. Well, this seven-year period hasn't come yet, and, yet, and it's going to happen. And the other group of people, of course, would be those who come to Christ during the time of the tribulation, which are called tribulation saints. And if you were with us when we studied the book of Revelation... We realize that uh, God has a special plan for them, but that's not the church. The church is the gathering of God's people. And okay, yeah, within <laughs> within the, the our study of the uh, Day of Atonement, which is next time, we will talk about that and and uh, 
and clarify those things. Okay, so that's enough. We got to let you guys get going, get going home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to, at least for this time around, conclude our study in the Feast of Trumpets. We've covered so much, yet there's still so many other things that we could have said. But Lord, we just entrust this time and the times that we've had with you to you, and we ask that you would help us to uh, understand it more and more as we as we devote ourselves more and more to reading and studying your word. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for making sense of these things through your spirit. And I pray, Father, that we will continue to search out your scriptures, that we might grow more and more in the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand.